In the mid-1920s, a man, as the description would fit him in both gender and name identity, could be seen in a baseball field with a device to which none had ever seen before, and to which most would not recognize today. With him and his device also came some of the best baseball players of his day. Those players included future Hall of Famers Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, Grover Cleveland Alexander, Tris Speaker, among many others, including Springfield native Rabbit Marinville. This man was no ordinary videographer. He, like everyone he was filming, was a Major League Baseball player. He was Leslie Mann, someone whose passion for teaching sports matched his of playing sports, and whose passion for teaching was rooted in his time coaching and studying at the very place we record from, Springfield College. Leslie Mann was born in Lincoln, Nebraska on November the 18th, the year 1892. His father was an owner of a clothes cleaning business and dye manufactory, and Leslie had two older brothers he likely learned sports from. Starting when he was 13, Leslie and his brother Channing played baseball for St. Mark's Sunday School, where they won city championships. And as an offshoot of St. Mark's Sunday School, Leslie was also part of the first uniformed traveling baseball team in Nebraska. When he eventually went to Lincoln High School, his athletic prowess kept evolving, as he played varsity football, basketball, and baseball all four years of high school. In fact, Leslie was the first person at his high school to play varsity football, basketball, and baseball all as a freshman. At Lincoln High, his team won a Missouri Valley football and basketball championship while he was there. Individually, he won the 100-meter and 220-meter races at Nebraska and Missouri Valley championships. Also in 1910, he was second in the 100-meter and the 220-meter at the National Track and Field Meet. In Leslie Mann's senior year, he received All-State honors in football, basketball, and baseball. While that was happening, he was a professional baseball player at the age of 16 and 17. Mann was in the Class D League, which was a low-level minor league for the time. After graduating from Lincoln High School, Mann enrolled at the International Young Men's Christian Association Training School, which is now known as Springfield College. There, he became the first player in the school's history to play varsity football as a freshman. He not only was a member of the team as a freshman, but he played a major role. This was exemplified in one of the biggest wins in Springfield's history over Syracuse. It was a low-scoring 9-5 affair, and Mann was the perpetrator of Springfield's points as he kicked a field goal and returned a punt for a 90-yard touchdown. His freshman year was where he was just getting started. In 1912, he scored the only points of a game against the University of Vermont, where Springfield won 7-0. The Springfield student, which has been the school's newspaper since 1910, said, The monotony of the game was only broken by Leslie Mann's 75-yard run for a touchdown in the third quarter, which was a spectacular exhibition of open field running. In a different Springfield student article that recapped Springfield's football season, it stated, Mann's run in the Vermont game was the most spectacular ever seen in Burlington. However, this was not the highlight of Mann's 1912 season. That would come on November 23, when his team faced off against the Carlisle Indians. The Indians' captain and best player was Jim Thorpe, who was an Olympic gold medalist and went on to play professional football and in Major League Baseball. After Mann put together a great performance, which included him scoring 18 out of 24 points for Springfield along with quality punting and kick returning, Thorpe said to Mann, We did not expect to have such opposition or meet such an athlete as you. We had to change our entire strategy. You changed the whole outcome of our game, 
both offensively and defensively. We were lucky to win. But, despite Mann's football abilities, it was his baseball skill that earned him a professional contract. In the beginning of 1912, he signed a contract with the Boston Braves worth up to $150 a month. After a year in the minors, his contract with the Braves prohibited him from playing football for Springfield after 1912. His brief football career at Springfield will never be forgotten. In the Springfield Student article that recapped the 1912 season, the publication described his skills and best moments. Quote, Leslie has shown up conspicuously for two years as a remarkable football player. As an open field runner, he can hold his own against any man on the gridiron today. There is scarcely a department in the game in which man does not shine. Time and time again, his beautiful spiral punts of 50 and 60 yards have brought forth admiration from the spectators and made his opponents hustle. Running back punts is a specialty, and shall we who saw him matched against the mighty Thorpe in the Carlisle game ever forget? In 1912, the Braves put Leslie Mann in the Class B Northwestern League with the Seattle Giants, where he hit 300 with 23 home runs in 163 games for the team as a center fielder. He also helped the team to a 99-66 record, winning the Northwestern League championship. Mann was called up to the Braves early on in the 1913 season, and he made his MLB debut on April 30th against the Phillies at the age of 19 years and 163 days. Not only was he making his MLB debut, but he was doing it alongside Springfield native and future Hall of Famer Rabbit Marinville, who was also in his rookie season. After going hitless in his first two career games, he went 2-4 for four with a home run and 3 RBI in a 4-1 to one win over Brooklyn. Overall in 1913, he led the Braves in doubles with 24. The Braves finished the year 69-82-3, so the season was not eventful from a team perspective. However, Les Mann would not have to get used to that. After July 4, 1914, the Braves were 26-40 and and had the worst record in the National League. But, in a turn of the tide, after that date, they won 66 of their next 82 games for an 8.05 winning percentage and won the pennant. After July 4th, Mann hit 291 with a 769 OPS and 199 plate appearances, with the OPS being over 100 points above the National League average OPS that year, which was 651. After winning the pennant in dramatic fashion, the challenges didn't end for the 1914 Braves. They had to face the Philadelphia Athletics, who were 99-53, had won three of the previous four World Series, and carried five players on their roster that were eventually inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. In Game 2 of the series, Eddie Plank was one strike away from completing his ninth shutout inning in order to keep the game scoreless. Charlie Deal was on third base, and Les Mann was up to bat. Society for American Baseball Research described that, quote, man flicked a plank offering just out of the reach of second baseman Eddie Collins' outstretched glove, unquote. This drove Deal in, which gave the Braves a one to nothing lead. They won game two and eventually won the World Series. Two days after winning the World Series, Mann was back in Springfield and attended classes the day after he arrived. Yet, he did not complete the semester, and as Society for American Baseball Research puts it, quote, he stayed in Springfield long enough to be feeded with Rabbit Marinville by the Springfield City Fathers and by his classmates at the training college, unquote. 
Despite all his early successes, there was still something missing for Leslie Mann. After getting paid $2,100 and $2,700 in 1913 and 1914 respectively, Mann wanted to be paid $4,000 in 1915, and he refused a $3,000 contract from the Braves. When he was going from Lincoln, Nebraska back to Springfield for the spring semester, he made a stop in Chicago and met with the manager of the Chicago Whales, Chicago's Federal League team. This league was created in 1914 as competition for the American and National League. Then, on February 19, 1915, he accepted a two-year contract worth $4,000 per season that also came with a $1,000 signing bonus. Lesman III, who is Lesman's grandson, weighed in on his grandfather's independence he displayed at a young age. I think the fact that he left the Braves to go for what was then a startup league, the Federal League, right. uh, in Chicago, speaks to the fact that he was, was willing to take risk to advance his career. Yeah, and and I, I read correspondence between my grandfather and uh, the commissioner, uh, Judge Landis, and, and, it, and it seemed like he had a real independent streak around wanting better pay um, and, and, and being willing to take some risk with his playing career in order to, to leverage those discussions. In Les Mann's 1915 season, he hit 306 with a 795 OPS and a 138 OPS plus, signifying he was 38% above the average Federal League hitter. He was in the top 10 in the league in average, OPS, OPS plus, and wins above replacement. The Whales went 88-66-3 and won the pennant. To this day, Mann remains one of two players in baseball history to tally 15-plus triples, 15-plus stolen bases, and strike out 40 or fewer times in a season before turning 22. The other player to do so, Rogers Hornsby in 1917. How about that? His stay in the Federal League was short-lived, after the league agreed to a peace accord with the AL and NL after 1915. Mann's contract, like many Chicago Whales contracts, was assumed by the Chicago Cubs. From 1916 to 1928, Mann wrote out the rest of his playing career in the National League. This run was highlighted by his season with the 1918 Cubs. While the Cubs went 84-45 and and won the National League pennant, Mann hit 288 and led the Cubs in doubles with 27. In Game 4 of the World Series against the Red Sox, with Chicago down 2-1 in the 8th inning, Mann hit a game-tying RBI single off Babe Ruth. Then in Game 5, Mann hit the go-ahead RBI double that helped the Cubs win 3-0, and also made a highlight reel catch sitting on Duffy's cliff after he tripped going for the fly ball. Yet, what Mann will be remembered for in that series is his labor negotiating. Earlier in the season, owners decided to pay players in the World Series less in order to give more to the second, third, and fourth place teams in each league, and also decided to give 10% of the World Series players' compensation to war efforts. Then, attendance for the first four games of the series was very bad, which took away from the players even more. Mann met with Red Sox captain Harry Hooper several times during the series to discuss how the players could get a better share. Before Game 5, the players demanded that the winners get $1,500 guaranteed and the losers get $1,000 guaranteed, or else they would not play the game. However, since they had no leverage, as the owners, National Commission, and fans were against them, they played without having those demands met. It was played an hour late due to the standoff. 
Throughout his years in the majors, Mann transformed based on team needs. After going from the Cubs and back to the Braves, he eventually found his place in St. Louis. During the stretch, where he hit mostly against left-handed pitchers, he hit 341 with a 934 OPS and 147 OPS+. Out of 238 batters with 500-plus plate appearances in that span, Mann's batting average ranked 20th and his OPS ranked 21st, both top 9% in the league. The rest of his career was not significant on the stat sheet, but what he did out of competition was very significant. Leslie Mann's desire for coaching was shown before he was ever a veteran in Major League Baseball. In the fall of 1913, when his contract with the Braves prohibited him from playing football, he helped out with coaching quarterbacks and punters. From 1919 to 1922, Mann was the director of physical education and the basketball coach of Rice Institute, which is now known as Rice University. He also coached basketball at Indiana University in 1923 and 1924, then in 1925. Mann received a Bachelor's of Physical Education from Springfield College and coached basketball and baseball there from 1925 to 1928. He brought this passion to teaching the basics of baseball to a larger audience. Society for American Baseball Research says, quote, Mann organized a baseball school that had Rogers Hornsby, Grover Cleveland Alexander, and George Sisler as instructors. By 1924, Mann had a business called Leslie Mann's Coaching System based in Bloomington, Indiana. Around this time, he created the Manscope. National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum Curator of History and Research John O'Dell discussed the Manscope with Carlos Pena and Lindsey Barra. You know who one his, his uh, teammates was? It was a guy named Les Mann. That's what this big thing is right here. This is so cool. Fast forward, rewind, stop action. It's like your cell phone, but it's not. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. it's, it's, it's everything that you want it to be. It's like, how many times did you go back and look at, at film of oh, yourself? All, all the time. Yeah. What Les Mann wanted to do was he wanted to let everybody know the right way to play baseball. He, he loved amateur baseball. He was a grassroots guy. How do you teach people how to play baseball? And because he was... Uh, on the Braves with Thorpe and played for a, a number of different teams. He knew all the major leaguers. So he got them to show him how to field, how to hit, how to pitch. And he filmed them on this big format film that he had. And then he'd mail that around to all these amateur <laughs> wait, places. Wait. So are you telling me that this is the first instructional baseball video out there? This really? Is, this, you know, the thing that's unique about this was not only was it an, uh, one of the, it was at least one of the very first, but it, here was what the thing that was interesting. He invented this particular uh, machine, this projector, so that he could roll it, slow it, slow it down, yeah. stop, back it up, see how he's working his foot like this, without burning the film. His advocacy for baseball eventually spread to the Olympics. This was highlighted for the 1936 Summer Olympics held in Berlin, Germany. With Adolf Hitler building a dictatorial empire, many countries discussed a boycott of the games before they started. Mann, however, was on the side of sending an American baseball team to the Olympics, and he won his case. With no country besides the U.S. sending a baseball team to the 1936 games, the 21-man team split itself into two teams and played an exhibition game in Berlin in front of more than 90,000 spectators. The team was escorted by Babe Ruth, and an April 9, 1936 edition of the Sporting News featured a photograph of Les Mann and Babe Ruth shaking hands. 
Les Mann III and John O'Dell talked about Mann's Olympic advocacy. I think he was on the other side of that debate. I think he wanted he wanted the he wanted baseball to get the publicity of the Olympics, mm. uh, and he mm. was working to get it. You, you you may or may not recall or have have seen that the 1940 Olympics were scheduled to be in Tokyo, and right. obviously they got they did get canceled, um, and then baseball really didn't reemerge as part of the Olympic conversation until decades later. Um, so the whole history of baseball in the Olympics is another theme that, that kind of my, my grandfather's presence early on kind of weaves in there. And this is not all he's done, right? I mean, no. we're talking about the fact that he is huge in amateur baseball, right? right? And a big proponent for the Olympics. That's right. Baseball in the Olympics. In the Olympics. Baseball in the Olympics. So baseball and the Olympics and baseball in the Olympics. Okay. So, uh, in the very early 30s, he started championing to get baseball into the Olympics, and he finally succeeded for the 1936 Olympics, which was held, you know, in Berlin. Mm. And so he uh, he's held a, some tryouts, uh, tryouts in Baltimore, for instance. And uh, one of the ball players who came down from New York was named Herman Goldberg. Now, Herman Goldberg is Jewish uh, ball player. And Adolf Hitler had said, we don't want any blacks coming. Yeah. We don't want any Jews coming. What did America do? We sent over uh, Jesse Owens. We sent over Jewish ball players uh, because we weren't gonna play that Adolf Hitler's game. Mann continued to advocate for the Olympics beyond the 1936 games. That was just one of the many hats Mann wore for the game of baseball after his playing career was over. Shortly after he hung up the cleats, he was hired by the AL and NL owners to go on an educational tour of the country for amateur baseball coaches. In 1931, he founded the United States Amateur Baseball Association. Mann also had amateur baseball teams play around the world, including in countries like England and Cuba. Away from baseball, he also received a Bachelor's of Science in 1941 at Springfield College. Five years later, Mann founded the United States Amateur Football Association. He also received appropriate praise, getting induction into the Nebraska Sports Hall of Fame in 1957, then becoming one of the inaugural members of the Springfield College Athletics Hall of Fame in 1972. There are many ways to describe Leslie Mann. Of course, he was an incredible athlete, which is proven by all his high school achievements, his incredible football career at Springfield, and his 16 years in Major League Baseball. He was also a winner, which is shown by state championships and Missouri Valley Championships, both on teams and individually. It was also shown professionally, with him winning the Northwestern League title, a World Series, two National League pennants, and a Federal League pennant. But one word describes him best. Based on this conversation, if I had to like put a name on it, I'd say he was like an ambassador for the game, like with all of his promoting and like everything he did. I feel like that would be a good way to have described his efforts. Like, how, how would you have done so? I, I think the word ambassador is an excellent choice. Um, I mean, it, 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 it ties to his promotional efforts of amateur baseball. Generally, it ties to his 
his passion for coaching. Um, it, uh, I, th- I think it's excellent. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast episode about the great Les Man. I am Chris Gianta. And I am Daniel Curran. And we would like to thank the Society for American Baseball Research for two reasons. Their website's information was vital to the making of this. And the Springfield chapter allowed us to present for them about Les Man. We would also like to thank the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum for the access they provided us and the videos which we included in our presentation and podcast. We would also like to thank StatHad and Baseball Reference for the statistics we found on their sites. A lot of credit should be given to the Springfield College Archives and Jeff Monceau, who sat down with us for a half hour and guided us through how we can find information. We cannot thank Les Man III enough for sitting down with us for about 40 minutes to talk about his grandfather with us as his information and perspective added so much to our work. We also have to thank Marty Dobrow for helping us with this project throughout its whole process and instilling the trust in us to present in front of Sabre. And lastly, we would like to thank you, the audience, for appreciating our work and providing quality feedback. If you want to follow us on social media, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta and follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Curran and follow the show Instagram at Above Replacement Radio. If you want to subscribe to us on YouTube when we have video podcasts, go to your go to our YouTube channel. It is called Above Replacement Radio. And we hope you enjoyed this episode and we hope to see you in the future. <laughs>